The Last Word with Matt Cooper. John Gibbons, you haven't even started yet and the text messages are coming in to say you've no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Here's one that says, if hair coursing is banned, there'll be no onus on the coursing clubs to protect, to preserve the hairs. This will decimate the Irish hair as has happened in the UK. So you could have the law of unintended consequences. Uh, good evening, Matt. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one, this... Uh First of all, under the Wildlife Act 1976, uh, hares are officially designated as a protected species in Ireland. They have the same status, for example, as badgers, bats, hedgehogs, otters, pine martens and the red squirrel. And there's only about maybe 250,000 uh, hares in Ireland. Now, probably important to say, first of all, these are these are a native species. They're also a, a, a solitary species. Now... What hair coursing basically involves is, oh yeah, to, to, go back, to go back briefly to that Wildlife Act, it's really curious. If you look at the wording, it says that it is illegal. So if you or I decided to go out the country this evening and trap hares and bring them off, you know, as pets or sell them or whatever, we'd be committing a crime under the Wildlife Act. However, a special derogation is written into the Act that you, can, you can't harm this, this protected species unless it is for coursing, which of course sounds like a loophole for a particular interest group. An interest group that I should say has remarkable uh, political support at, at, you know, in certain pockets of rural Ireland. I will also say this, Matt, most people in Ireland, and including in rural Ireland, absolutely reject the idea of capturing and torturing and tormenting wild animals. We say when you say tormenting and torturing, tell us how the coursing actually okay, works. I'll just explain. For those who are not familiar with Of course, yeah. Well, first of all, roughly every year about 6,000 hares are, are captured. Now, they're captured by, by guys going out uh, and basically setting, setting netting traps and banging and screaming at them. So they capture them. Now, as I say, these are wild animals. They have no contact whatsoever with humans. So the very act of being captured is enormously traumatising for them. Then they have to be, quote, trained. So they're kept captive for, on average, about eight weeks. So they're trained as to how, which direction to run in a particular field. Then when they're considered to be trained enough, then the, the greyhounds are let loose on them. Now, because of the work done, done back in 1983 by Tony Gregory, the late Tony Gregory, uh, greyhound muzzles have to be fitted, which means the greyhounds don't get to actually tear the hares to pieces when they capture them. What they do instead, like obviously plenty of hares still get injured and killed in this. And, but I think the most important thing is these are wild animals that are being used essentially for, for fun and entertainment. Now, the National Parks and Wildlife Service, Matt, did a study on this. They, they studied, it was a small sample study of 40 hares, uh, and they were released and monitored. Now, 20 of these hares had been coursed, and 20 hadn't. So what they found is, after six months, they were able to, to identify and locate eight of the 20 non-coursed hares. But of the coursed hares, only one of, of their 20 could be located. What that indicates, which, by the way, common sense would suggest is once these animals are dumped back into the wild, traumatised, broken, terrified, their survival rate, of course, collapses. They're also broken away from their family groups, from their, from their, their own locale. And who knows, by the way, if they're even dumped back remotely close to where they were taken in the first place. But it's a pretty barbaric idea. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine if hair coursing didn't exist and we decided to invent it. There would be absolute uproar in Ireland. People saying, are you absolutely mad? Would you leave wild animals alone? Who could get pleasure out of tormenting defenceless, harmless wild animals for their amusement? And that's all this is. 
you say 6,000 hairs a year are captured for use by the coursing clubs. That's that's the figures provided by uh, the Social Democrats and uh, Jennifer Whitmore. Uh, she's put this forward in what she calls the Protection of Hairs Bill 2023. And basically they're moving forward to try to have this ridiculous exemption from the from the 1976 Wildlife Act overturned, Matt, so that hares are en- enjoy the same protection as a, quote, protected species. The bit we're forgetting about here is the protected bit. I think as well there's something kind of brutal about this pursuit. Now, I'm sure there are people listening to now uh, very upset at the idea that this is. But, you know, do we really want, for example, our kids other young people to to think that it's okay to harry and torment wild animals it is uh, to me it's indicative of an incredible disrespect for wildlife and the notion by the way that that the people involved in hair coursing are somehow custodians of hares i mean seriously pull the other one okay let's move on tell us what this major international report is cut by the earth commission group of scientists which says the earth's health is failing in seven out of eight key measures what are these measures yeah matt this is uh well the study is known as a planetary boundaries review and it's been published in the in the scientific journal uh, nature just yesterday in fact and they describe it as the most ambitious attempt yet to combine signals of planetary health with indicators of human welfare because we've already had numerous planetary health reports and I've spoken to you about them before. This one incorporates human welfare and tries to figure out where we're at. And what the report concludes is that we're approaching what they describe as a saturation point. This is where we hit the ceiling of the biophysical capacity of the Earth system to remain in a stable state. They say we're approaching tipping points and we're seeing more and more permanent damage to the life support systems on a global scale. So, the kind of systems that are creaking, um, we've got a global water crisis, a crisis of water availability, a crisis of what's called nutrient loading. This basically means excess nitrates and phosphates being dumped into the water, water courses. Uh, we've got ecosystem failure, we've got aerosol pollution crisis right across the world, and of course, we have a climate and a biodiversity crisis, which you and I have spoken about many, many times. So, what they're saying is this seven of the eight critical boundaries for human health on a healthy planet have already been breached. And essentially, what they're saying in, in plain terms is, we need to take a very large step back. And they, they propose specific ways that we can look at this. They say, for example, that in areas of the world that are already significantly altered by humans, between 20 and 25% of the land area in, these, in, in countries like that, which of course would include Ireland, has to be devoted to semi-natural habitats, to the restoration of semi-natural habitats, which I might add, Matt, is incredibly timely because, of course, yesterday there was a a protest outside Dáil Éireann against the opposition by political parties, including Fine Gael and and many in Sinn Féin, uh, who are trying to shoot down the nature restoration law at European level. So what this report, which literally landed the day of that protest, is saying we have no choice. If we want to survive as a species through the 21st century, we have to make room for nature recovery. This isn't optional. This isn't about this lobby group or this vested interest. If we don't make space for nature recovery, we as a species have no future. And I'm not really sure how much more plainly the scientists can set this out. Yeah, but a lot of people just don't believe it, John. They just think this is scaremongering, that this is an agenda to try and uh, make people be fearful and to change their livelihoods and their lifestyles uh, to suit those who would spread the fear. 
Sure. I suppose that, that type of conspiracy mongering, as we've talked about before here, Matt, uh, we reckon, according to the EPA work on this, uh, no more than 5%, probably in reality, about 3% of the Irish public actually subscribe to that type of conspiratorial thinking. Now, I know they're all over Twitter and I know they text radio stations furiously, but believe me, this is the lunatic fringe. Any reasonable person, when presented with comprehensive scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed journals, these are the best, the top scientific journals in the world, Matt. Oh, you mean your experts, is it? These, these, these experts. And these are, of course, not just experts in biodiversity. These are experts across the whole physical science spectrum. Well, then, why is it that the politicians do seem to be coming around on the side of those who are against change to try and block the nature restoration law that you mentioned? Sure. I think it's very, very straightforward. Uh, nature doesn't have lobbyists in Brussels, not on the scale that you see the likes of Copa Cagia and so on. Uh, the agri-industrial lobby is furiously lobbying. They're whining and dining uh, MEPs. They're pestering people. They're pushing their agenda. And of course, they're pushing a financial agenda, Matt. Right? I understand that. And they're up to a point. They're entitled to push a financial agenda. But of course, that financial agenda is overwhelming the scientific evidence that says we all collectively have to take a, take a step back. Unfortunately, these particular and I will call them this, and I'll use it specifically, these activist lobbyists. These are, these are genuine activists. These are people basically acti- you know, lobbying for do-nothing, basically saying we are going to ignore all the overwhelming scientific evidence of earth system collapse because we want to push more and more money into our pockets this year, next year, and in five years' time. Now, right here in Europe, Spain, for example, Matt, right now is burning up. Pretty soon we're going to have a situation where the Spanish agricultural industry is going to be saying and is already starting to say to you we need to be bailed out because the condition for agriculture in Spain are deteriorating. But does that actually not suggest that we're going to have to try and make up some of the shortfall in the sense that if countries like Spain are no longer able to produce as much food as they did, albeit that we would produce different types of food, that a country that isn't suffering in the way that Spain is, like Ireland, is going to actually have to produce more? I completely agree. And the conditions, the agricultural conditions in Ireland for producing food for human consumption are excellent. There is this uh, myth that has been developed in recent years that Ireland is only suitable for growing grass. And therefore, all we can really do is livestock. That's absolutely not the case. I believe it's 30% of the land area, the agricultural land area of Ireland, is perfectly suitable for tillage. And I'll put it to you this way, Matt. During the Second World War, the so-called emergency in Ireland, the Irish government directed agriculture on pain of criminal sanction to increase, to move away from livestock and to increase tillage. Guess why? Because the the onus of the time was on self-sufficiency and the ability to feed our population. We're now in a strange situation. 85% of all the fruit and veg in an Irish supermarket is imported. We're not even feeding ourselves. Okay, I want to finish by talking to you about Turkmenistan. Now, people might say, why the hell will we talk about Turkmenistan? But I think this is really important because they have this vast methane lake effectively because of mining I think it was done in the past they have created this extraordinary carbon emission more coming out of this methane lake than in the entire United Kingdom in a year but that does suggest rather than lifestyle changes we need to be plugging holes like what's happened in Turkmenistan 
what we need to be doing, Matt, is absolutely all of the above, right? For example... But talk to me about Turkmenistan. Yeah. Explain what's happened there. I will, of course, yeah. I mean, basically, everywhere where you're involved in oil and gas mining, you can have either you're directly drilling for, for what's called natural gas or methane, uh, or sometimes it's simply a fugitive gas as a result of oil exploration. Now, what you're supposed to do uh, you, you often see it, for example, on, on gas rigs is uh, flaring. That means you basically you set fire to the gas flare as it burns off. Now, that's not very pretty. It's ecologically not very, not very uh, attractive, let's say. But it means that that gas is converted into CO2, which, bad and all as it is, is 80 times less potent than if you simply release methane directly into the atmosphere. Like raw methane, whether it's from gas leaks or from uh, ruminant, ruminant burps, is an unbelievably powerful greenhouse gas. And as you said, in this particular case in Turkmenistan, and of course this is to do with countries where we've got very pu- very poor regulatory over- oversight, which means essentially, and by the way, I've seen similar reports on a smaller scale of this happening in the US. And what happens basically is an oil company comes in or a gas company comes in, they, they frack out a particular uh, site, uh, then they declare bankruptcy and they move off and they leave the cost of the cleanup to the state. And in many cases, like Texas, the state doesn't have the money or it doesn't have the inclination. So you have fugitive methane leaking into the atmosphere. The particular case in Turkmenistan is so large that it's showing up now on satellite sensors. And we cannot afford a situation where uh, methane levels are continuing to spike like this. So since pre-industrial, we know, for example, that CO2 levels have increased by 30%, which is incredible. But methane levels, Matt, have risen by threefold. They've actually gone up three times over pre-industrial. So when you allow for all the natural sources of methane, human-induced methane, whether it's from oil and gas drilling or whether it's from uh, livestock agriculture, are now a clear and present threat, if you like, on top of the CO2. Yeah, but hold on. If you were to deal with the crisis in Turkmenistan... It would give us more time to deal with all the other issues. I mean, for instead of us changing our lifestyles enormously and finding that no matter what we do, that what they do in places like Turkmenistan is doing enormous additional damage. Yeah, I come back to this again. It's all of the above, right? If we take that view, effectively what we're engaged with is fatalism. That's the view that says, well, we'll wait until China does X or India does Y or Turkmenistan does W. We can't. We have to act strongly based on our on our ability. And of course, rich countries like Ireland have the best opportunity to act first. So we have to clean up our own our own doorstep. And then, of course, Matt, support uh, poorer countries in cleaning up their act too. And of course, this, by the way, is the best advert ever for the renewable energy transition. Thank you very much, John Gibbons. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from four thirty. Today and-